นโมทัสสะบะกวะโทวะระหะโทสมมาสัมบุตตสนะโมทัสสะบะกวะโทอะระหะโทสมมาสัมบุตตสนะโมทัสสะบะกวะโทอะระหะโทสมมาสัมบุตตสะอาปารุธาเดสังมัตสัทวราเยสุรวันธาบมุนชันทุสัตัง
the precepts or the vinaya. So then the, the problems arise on the personal level. I mean, isn't this see that our personalities are all different and and our you know, the way we react or think or emotional patterns or attitudes, body language, all these are quite can be individual and unique. We can't make everybody conform to be one one kind of personality or be able to act in a you know move and think and emote in a in a prescribed way. It's an impossibility. So the, the disharmonies and problems arise always around this, the personal. And that's why in the practice of mindfulness, one is, uh, you know, one isn't demanding, making demands on individual members of the community to, to uh, you know, to fit into what one prefers or feels comfortable with, but to use the, the, the practice to be aware of what happens within one's mind. <coughs> so how we affect each other, how we react to each other through body speech is to be reflected on, not to be, you know, not um, caught in the worldly attitudes of praise and blame and and so forth that you know, easily uh, they were easily inclined towards. <clears throat> so see the challenge all the time of uh, of the awareness is the only refuge we have because uh, this is you know if you really recognize and value awareness then there's no other. Yeah, everything else that's possible that you can think of or create in your mind will never you'll never find it you know an ideal community an ideal country an ideal society ideal monks and ideal nuns as this they don't exist <laughs> unless they're idols like that's an ideal he's ideal he's an idol and then <laughs> And he, you know, when you go over there, he isn't offended by anything. <laughs> because an ideal is like that. It's, uh, it's, it's perfect in form. So we can make perfect forms, exquisite forms. But then the, the uh, human side of the situation is to be aware of the way it is. So, Dhamma is not, is not pointing to ideals. It's not a teaching about how things should be if everything were perfect and every, everything was right. But this uh, relentless pointing to the way things are, the anicca dukkanata, the, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena, its nature, its very nature, is it, it can't really satisfy us. We can't find satisfaction even in the best of the conditioned realm. 
We can get, say, momentary gratification at best from uh, the conditioned realm. But satisfaction or contentment comes through awareness. So this, and this awareness, of course, is so simple, so direct, and, uh, that we tend to not really believe in it. You know, we can believe in our views and opinions and our ideals more than we can really trust in our ability to be aware. <clears throat> so I was, uh, tonight I was looking at uh, Buddha Rupa, which I remember having cast that in the late 90s in Thailand. Yeah. And the, the Atapemo, Ajahn Atapemo, who's now John, and uh, Venerable Aginjano was involved in it. Uh, Venerable Abhinyana, the New Zealand monk, we were all uh, engaged in the in the building and making, designing of this Buddha Rupa. I remember we 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 were, we were trying to create a Rupa where everybody would be pleased with it. You know, this is the aim. Because people have so many strong views about Buddha Rupas. So, um, we'd have, we asked for various, you know, people, monks, nuns, to share their thoughts on what it should look like. And so, this is the result. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember the little bit that, let's see, that little flap that hangs over the, remember that was very controversial. You know, the feet, the, the little flap. We weren't quite sure what it was, but it was on one, one rupa, picture of a rupa that somebody sent. So there's a lot of discussion in meetings around that flap. <laughs> and, and then uh, to get the nose right and the mouth right, and and uh, I remember uh, Venerable Avignano, who's an artist, has a great eye for aesthetics. He's the one that kind of we wanted the robe to be not so kind of formal, not like the sukotai, which are skin tight, but to have the folds, but not too kind of uh, artificial, more natural. And then they design the feet so they look like normal feet because uh, in Burubas usually the feet are, are square and flat. So, and then I've heard criticisms about the feet because the Buddha didn't have big toe like that. So every day we'd almost, we'd have to go, we stayed in Bangkok and then we'd have to drive out. And it's one of the busiest roads down to, to Gumpang San, which is near Nakhon Patom. And, and that's a, you know, traffic congestion is horrendous on that, on that road. So we'd spend hours going, trying to manage the traffic to get to this place. And 
But it was a fascinating thing to do, too, because the artists, the ones who, who actually, you know, did the, the work, the molding of the rupa and so forth, were, they were quite open to suggestions. So, I mean, we could, you know, they would do whatever we wanted. And so the, the result, finally, is, is what you see. And then we decided we'd get the Sangharaja to, if he would honor us by naming it. So I remember we went to Wat Bhavaniwate in Bangkok and uh, appointment to, to meet with the Sangharaja, Somdet Nyanasangwan. And uh, so we asked him if he would give it a name. So he, he's, we, he's just sitting there and he closes his eyes and he says, Marawati. Could you say that again? <laughs> so that long A, you know, the, it's a, they allied, you know, in, in uh, Pali they allied the, the words together. So uh, the A becomes long. So I had to practice that to be able to say it fluently. Now I was, I was observing that when I came in this evening, and I began to think of the, the Somdet, the Sangharaja, <coughs> who I've known before I even ordained, because he was the uh, he was called uh, Tanjo Kunsa. That's how he was known, Sasana Sopon, but amongst other people generally, he taught uh, Dhamma at Wat Bhavaniwet in those days, and he could speak English. So he was the uh, abbot, the, the Jawat of Wat Bhavan, and he was generally known as Tanjau Kun Sa. And, uh, and then over the years, the, my life has been very much influenced and affected by him. And now he's, uh, he's uh, in his 90s and quite ill and, and then the, he's in this, this very exalted position being the Sangharaja. And Thailand only has one Sangharaja. It doesn't, you know, it's, a, it's the ultimate of uh, attainment in terms of uh, worldly terms. And so just uh, recognizing the, the, uh, the aging process of a very fine monk. He was always a simple monk, even though he was in uh, one of the most prestigious monasteries and one of the most wealthy uh, and uh, highly regarded monasteries in Thailand. He always tried to live very simply. He was, his heart was really like a forest monk. You know, um, so uh, he was, uh, he never was opulent or extravagant in, in his own conduct. So if you saw him in a group, he, he just looked like an ordinary monk. He wasn't wearing kind of satin robes and, and uh, a crown or anything that would designate him as anyone special.
So recognizing that, uh, you know, in, in a system, monastic system, now there's all kinds of, you know, because he is old and he's quite ill and he has to spend a lot of time in the hospital and there's a lot of, of pol- politicking and things going on amongst the Sangha and, and that to create problems, the worldly problems of praise and blame and, and, uh, success and failure and the, the struggle because Worldly positions are, you know, you know, that brings out our worldly desires. To become, become, you know, the somebody important to have power to be, the, uh, you know, be uh, the best in terms of worldly titles or worldly values. So it's easy for anyone, you know, lay people as well as monks and nuns to be caught up in these kind of uh, worldly uh, conditions and how you know how that that I always felt the Sangharaja in spite of all the the things he's subjected to being in, in such a high position with so many pressures so much pressure from all sides uh, was able to sustain a simplicity and an awareness. And so, you know, because it's very difficult to do that, in, in, uh, you know, when you've got, when all the, you know, you're such a high profile individual, so where everybody has their views and opinions about you and what you're doing and what you say and who you see and who you're with and and, and on and on like this. So we're recognizing that the world is uh, is like that. It's always confused. There's always, you know, the endless play of sankharas going on. There's always views and opinions, projections, uh, illusions, delusions, fantasies, that we create in our minds and project outwards. And so we see that's why there is so much confusion at this time on the worldwide level, because that's just the way it is. There's no, there's not much direction uh, in terms of international leadership or wise leadership on, on the political or economic scene very much. Uh, you know, uh, um, the affluence and the development of wealth and ideas of progress and holding up very materialistic goals as as what are important or views of democracy or free market or capitalism or whatever words we, we incline to use. So in the time of the Buddha, I imagine there was, uh, you know, he, Buddha didn't interfere on the political scene. You know, he was, you know, his position was one of, of uh, not of taking sides on that level, but of, of being, uh, you know, that in the society which is like the the middle way, the thread that that uh, the, that 
we can all relate to that takes us or points to ultimate reality, to the Dhamma. So various kings and and rulers and that had their various opinions and views. But Buddha's main teaching was around morality, you know, not, you know, to the in, in encouraging the five precepts to take responsibility for action, for how we act in the world physically and how we speak, our ability to speak, because we, we also, uh, this is, uh, I think this is one of the most difficult uh, for us, is right speech. Because uh, it's so easy just to say anything, you know, to react and say things. So, <clears throat> I know for me, the uh, right speech has is, is, uh, not been that easy <laughs> to uh, develop. But then the refuge is in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So this goes back to here and now, right here, in this, in the heart here, one's own heart. Returning, always oh, that's a place to, to take refuge in. And of course that isn't in any view, opinion, or thoughts, or feelings you have about anything, yourself or the world, but in the awareness. And so during this winter's retreat, I've been, as you are well aware, those who have been uh, here, uh, this uh, relentless reiteration of this refuge. <laughs> because even though you understand it, maybe you, many of you get the idea, but to really trust it is, is another thing. This, uh, because it's so easy to, to give worldly values personal views uh, and so forth the, your full attention and commitment uh, because they're the ones that seem urgent important now the world always has you know, has this sense of urgency and importance you know it, the, you know, the kind of hysterical panic of, you've got to do something or you know, the, uh, the, these kind of voices you know, are very strong and very intimidating. Both in ourselves and when we hear without. When we want to stir up people, don't we? When we want to, demagogues and people of that nature like to wind people up and, and uh, stir them up because it's so easy to do. To, to use speech to stir things up. And so... Um, this is, you know, emotionally, you know, we're affected by, by the way things are said or the words that are used. So it's, it's beginning to, so what can we do? Can we just say everybody's got to speak in this very quiet way or, you know, we can make, make if you don't have anything of Dhamma to say, don't say anything. And that's, very idealistic actually <laughs> sometimes we need to 
say things we shouldn't. Sometimes we need to to let off steam, and and this is where the intuitive uh, uh, ability, you know, the trust in the intuitive sense, is important. So that we can, you know, we can listen to ourselves. You know, if we're trying to be perfect uh, and and all the time, then we we suppress, you know, and we we tend to resist and fight against ourselves and feel guilty when we fail. So that's why uh, intention is so important to uh, this right intention. Now intention doesn't mean, you know, the feeling of the moment. How I see intention, I deliberately choose from a cool place in myself, very quite rational. It's not based on being inspired and, and uh, full of, you know, a high a bliss for the Dhamma and, and that that I make the intention. It's much more after things have settled down, the intention to realize the truth, to be free from ignorance, to realize Nibbana. So that's that's the that's that's my intention for my monastic life. Why I ordained and have lived in this way for many years. <coughs> so my intention is very clear to me. You know, this is because I've made it intention intentionally and very, you know, it quite deliberately and made it and affirm it, you know, this is, this is my intention. And so this, because I've done this, then, then I have a way of reflecting on my own personal reactions to life in the Sangha, my emotional habits and the, the things, the experiences and that, that, hap- that, I, that, that I have during this life as a Buddhist monk. If you're trying to figure out what your intention is all the time, you know, and from you know, on a, in a personal way, you just get confused. You know, if I if I say some, some if I say something that isn't very good, you know, wrong speech. You know, I know my intention is not to, you know, is is still my intention is to realize nibbana, but the reaction may have been, you know, some kind of heedless moment of getting lost in, in my emotional state. And so I began to reflect on, you know, that this, then this be, instead of making this into an endless doubt and, and sense of worry or uh, self-criticism, I, I just, you know, I can, I can let it go because my intention is clear, and by recognizing any, uh, the the condition, then I can let go of it, rather than endlessly doubt and consider and worry about what my intention is. So in, in terms of like samaditi samasangapo, 
uh, right understanding, right intention. Neither. To me, right understanding is is uh, is not a, a viewpoint in words, not formulated in language, but in awareness. So, once you begin to establish and trust in the awareness, this the here and now, this point of of awareness, recognize it, realize it, and and then cultivate that. As to me, that's samaditi. It has no form. It's formless because it's empty. It's pure awareness. Then from that awareness, samaditi comes samasangapo. So the intention from that awareness, uh, you know, results in the, in the samawaja, samawaya, uh, Samagamanto samatiwa, right action, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So that means uh, the the action and speech, the physical, verbal, karmic uh, conditions are then influenced by right understanding, right intention, which lead towards samawayamo samasati samasamadi, or right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the Eightfold Path or the way of non-suffering. <clears throat> it's eightfold. It's not, it's not, you know, when we think about it, it becomes, you know, linear, you know, in, because thought is like that. Thought is bound to dualism and it, 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 it has a a to z kind of uh, practicality, but intuition or intuitive awareness or sati sampajanya, you know, is not bound to thought, is not limited by thought. Uh, so this is why when we when we try to sink ourselves into the path and try to analyze it and figure it out and get lost in in views and opinions about the Eightfold Path and the Fourth Noble Truth and, and me and my practice. It, we just get caught in a web, a sticky web of complication. So this is, this is uh, you know, the, the, when we create ourselves through, we, we create ourselves through thinking. I become somebody through thinking. And when there's just awareness, there's there's nobody. There's consciousness. The physical body is here breathing, and there's consciousness. It's quite empty. It's just pure awareness. And then wisdom can operate from that. Panya. So wisdom then discerns things. And so this is where in the <coughs> practicing of the Dhamma we, we wisely reflect on the way things are. So that the conditioned realm is, is seen through three characteristics of existence like anicca, dukkha, anatta. These are not doctrines that we project onto conditioned phenomena but 
but the ways of reflecting on the experience of phenomena, of emotion, of what of the sense realm that we're experiencing. <coughs> as soon as you think about it and identify with it, it becomes more than what it is. Because emptiness or pure awareness isn't it doesn't belong to anybody. You know, you can't claim it. It's so direct and so simple that it's overlooked. It's like I'm looking, where is it, you know? And it's right here, you know, but I, I'm not looking there, I'm looking, you know, trying to find it. And, uh, and so we're overlooking that which is most simple and most what we are in every moment we don't notice. We can completely spend a lifetime or lifetimes never noticing. Just because we're we're looking for something out there. So that's why in the, the Buddhist teaching it's this this emphasis on sati, sampachanya, satipanya, wake the awakeness, attention. And then to, to realize in the, in the Four Noble Truths, to recognize the Third Noble Truth is about realization of emptiness. It's reality. It's not, it's not just a, a theoretical idea. So this is where, you know, the encouragement to really trust this simple attentiveness to the present. Not what you're thinking or feeling. Not to grasp that, but to put it in the context of awareness. Feeling, thinking, sensory experience, emotional experience. Because there's the, this, uh, this awareness is not, uh, you know, is, is with us all, is our potential at every, every moment. not dependent on harmonious communities or perfect situations or any 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 kind of condition whatsoever. Since it's always here now, it's a matter of just recognizing it. So that's what I've been encouraged to 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 realize it's just this. It's nothing much. Doesn't you know you can't get your teeth into it. You can't prove it to somebody else and say this is this is the this is the real dumb and hold it out and then have a scientist put it under a microscope and dissect it. Because in the reality of it is it's not it's unconditioned. There's the unconditioned, the reality of the Amaravati. Amravati, it means deathless realm. So you see how, how uh, you know, 
many of you are beginning to trust it and recognize, you know, so that is, is, uh, you know, is very uh, lovely to see the commitment and willingness and because one has to bear with so many complicated emotional habits and views and opinions. One has to bear with all the ups and downs of community life, of the problems of the society we're in and the problems of the world and so forth. One, you know, these are affecting us. The, the people around us, the, the weather, whether it's spring or winter or spring, or whether, you know, it's peace or war or sunny or cold and wet. We're affected by everything, you know. So there's, there's a continuous kind of uh, impingement on us as, as uh, sensory beings. And they do affect. The mind. Just notice when, if it's been rainy and wet and damp for a few days, then the sun comes out. It's different, isn't it? You feel different than, you know, emotionally different than when it, than before. And how much the weather affects one's mood. Or physical things, whether you're feeling healthy or sick, whether you have a a cold or the flu, stomach upset. Remember in Thailand, you know, I had to, you know, I had to, uh, for a while, I didn't, you know, I was living in this branch monastery where the food was very, I found the food, uh, quite, I didn't like the food at all. And so there were very few things that I could really manage to eat, so... So one of the sticky rice I liked. And then this uh, green papaya salad they make. Is it called uh, Dhammahoom. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, and it was quite delicious. It's spicy. And, uh, and, and it's kind of, the way they make it, it tastes quite nice. So I could, I could eat this Dhammahoom with, uh, with sticky rice. So I found that that's what I'd eat most of the time was Dhammahoom and sticky rice. So then I um, began to notice that in the afternoons I was suffering from terrible stomach pains. You know, they, they were really bad. They were just, you know, you couldn't meditate. So I had this terrible, all this kind of agonizing stomach pain, stomach ache. And I didn't connect it to what I was eating, you know. I, 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 so um, I didn't know what was wrong with me. But I noticed that when you have a bad stomach, everything looks bad. That generally I'm quite a cheerful person. I usually, uh, you know, I was always noted when I was a child for my sunny nature, being a Leo and that, you know, kind of, a sun child, so you know, it's noted for being having a sunny nature. And yet, well, during that time, it comes saying, "Pet, you know, really grumpy and sour." You know, everything I looked at, you know, every thing that I experienced would be affected by my stomach. 
And then uh, Lung Po Cha came to visit one day and he said, uh, and, uh, Lung Po, I just feel terrible, terrible stomach cramps. He says, that's because you only eat Dhamma Hoong. You know, you can't eat it all the time. <laughs> It has all the, it's, it has all these, uh, you know, vinegar and, and kind of chilies and all kinds of spicy, delicious things, but they don't, you know, if that's what you're putting in your stomach, they, they have a, you know, you can't, your stomach can't take it. So I had to relinquish the one thing I like to eat. And of course, the stomach cramps went away. <laughs> I just noted the example of just how, you know, when, you know, how strong the, the physical state one is in affects how one sees things or experiences life. So who, what is aware of this? You know, the, the awareness. What is aware that the stomach feels like this? The stomach? You know, if I, if I if I don't if you know if I just react to this to the stomach pain then I oh what's wrong I don't and I start thinking about it analyzing it you know think, thinking I've got you know I can be real hypochondriacal if I want I think I've got cancer or some terrible terminal illness you know <laughs> because my mind you know I, I used to be quite a, a hypochondriac and get little a hangnail on my little finger and it'll probably turn into cancer and I'll die. You know, so the mind can, I can create a, a death scenario over, you know, a, a, a little pimple. That's how, you know, prolific my thoughts can be. It can create, you know, mountains out of molehills. <clears throat> So then, of course, the the practice of awareness. You know, more and more trusting in the awareness than than in the feeling of oh, what is this and who's at fault and have I got a an illness I'm going to die from and and on and on like this. Towards more awareness of the of the experience. So this. Even using situations, difficult situations, physical pain, illness, old age, uh, emotional reactions to things. You know, so like emotions get, get triggered off by various things. Sometimes we don't know why we're so upset or angry or frightened over something. Because, you know, it's not, you know, we can be really upset over something very small. And I think, why, why do I get so, oh, up, so upset over that? You know, and I, rational mind thinks about it, that this is, this is trivial and it's silly and why should I be so, so distraught over something so trivial? Because rationally, there's no reason. So the rational mind tends to, you know, Say, oh, don't be so silly, don't be such an idiot, and and uh, and give all this kind of good advice of just, you know, bear with it, the world like that, and don't make a scene, don't be a nuisance. And then the then the emotions, 
can be still going, you know, this is terrible, I can't stand it, I won't bear it, it's too much, and on and on like that. There, there's, and then the, then the inner, the, the, the uh, bossy intellect says, don't be so silly, you know, don't make a scene, you know, don't be ridiculous. So there's, you know, we're getting different voices from different directions. How many of you ever felt this, this battlefield within yourself? Your sensible rationality, your intelligent mind, and your emotional experience. So, like my, I call it the inner tyrant. The inner tyrant is the judge, nemesis. It was there with a whip. You know, Nemesis is a goddess with a, with a she's holding a, a branch to whip me. And, uh, and so then, uh, something, you know, the, the emotional, the, the, this inner tyrant is always, uh, judging, criticizing. So it sounds quite intelligent usually and, and it's very intimidating. And then the, the emotions, the, the inner child, you know. And they use these terms, inner child, or the, the, the lost soul, or the, the, or you might say just immature emotional habits. And you put it, put it in uh, less emotive terms. But anyway, the, you know, the emotions are what they are. You know, so what the Buddha encouraged us to do is to be aware of emotional experience, not judging it. As soon as we start judging it, we go back up here, Nemesis starts saying, oh, that's stupid, don't be so silly. You shouldn't think like that. You shouldn't feel like that. You're not a good monk. That's judgment, isn't it? The nemesis always loves to, to, to uh, you know, it's always, nemesis never says, you're really a good monk and you're wonderful. She's always ready there with the whip, the scourge, you know. You shouldn't have thought that thought. <laughs> So then the awareness, what, isn't from the intellect, isn't it? It's not a rational function. It's not emotion. So what is it? (laughs) It's not thinking, it's not emotional, but it's, it's reality. It's awareness. So that awareness is what we're, we're pointing at. The awakened attempt, the simple imminent act of attentiveness in the present. Which we can easily not notice because the emotions can be very powerful, screaming away. The intellect, the, the inner tyrant can be, you know, abusing, intimidating, like crazy, you know. Throwing, throwing me into all kinds of guilt and, and remorse and self-aversion. But the awareness 
is aware of this because these are conditioned phenomena. You know, these, they are what they are. You know, and, and so it's not a matter of, of saying how my intellect should be and how emotion, my, how emotionally balanced I should be, how I've got to balance my emotions and, and, and grow up a bit and not be so childish and emotional and, and, and silly about things and how I've got to, you know, and, and all the kind of advice that one's rational mind so willingly come, gives, gives me all the judgments, criticisms, and boring old hackneyed advice that it comes up with, telling me how I should be. But awareness is, uh, embraces both. Aware. It discerns. You know, you know, I keep reiterating, the difference between being able to criticize and to discern. Now, this, Thinking is critical. When I start thinking about things, I, my critical faculties are in action. This is better than that. This is bigger, smaller, and so forth. And then, you know, the, I like this, but I don't like that. This is good and that's evil. That's a critical mind. And then the in terms of sati panya, panya is isn't critical, but it is discerning. Discernment then is knowing things as they are, knowing conditioned phenomena as that. Not projecting the idea of conditioned phenomena onto experience, but but receiving it. Thinking, feeling, emotions are like this. So then that's. That is what you, what you take refuge in. And that you can't really name. You can't, you can't point to it and say it's there. You know, when I point here, it's just a, a kind of metaphor for it. <laughs> it's not like in the, in the, in the body at all. But it's, the idea is to go back here. To learn to just pay attention to life. To receive and discern so that in practice, in vipassana, meditation, we're actually, you know, seeing the way it is. The all conditions are impermanent, all dhamma is not self. So in this, uh, this uh, I've had a very, uh, I've really enjoyed this winter's retreat. I came in late due to my commitments in Thailand. And uh, when, I, when I arrived back in England, I was uh, totally exhausted. So I had to spend several days at least to uh, kind of uh, revive. I'm getting old now, you know, so I'm not as resilient as I used to be, and then, uh, but then uh, I found everybody, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the monastic community and the lay support group, so uh, pleasant to live with, and uh, enjoyed very much these uh, three months. So I want to thank you all. 
because I had a good time. <laughs> now, whether you had a good time or not, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, uh, again, I say, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just the, it's an encouragement. You know how I see that, that this is really important to me to be someone who can encourage you, not to teach you things and tell you what you should do and and all that, but to encourage this awakening. Because I see that's where, uh, especially Western Buddhists, are most inadequate. We don't have a lot of sadha or faith, and. Uh, so, and we're, we're trained to be very critical. So, so we, uh, you know, this, this sense of really trusting your own insight, you know, to really, you know, to, to find that. And you say, no, you can do it, and, and it's trustworthy. This you have to realize for yourself. So the only best thing I can do, the only thing I can do to help is encourage that. So the teachings I've been, or the uh, encouragements I've been giving <laughs> are really meant to be just that. So, uh,